Hey, this is Jose Galison of No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me just about anywhere where podcasts are at, all the major podcatchers and shit. Today, my guest is Dave Smith, and the topic we'll be covering today is uh, Murray Rothbard's work of the Anatomy of State. This will be, I'm continuing my podcast series of um, the Anarchist Handbook, uh, which is, for those who don't know, is a compilation of different anarchist thinkers. So I've already done one. I did one with Sterner on Sterner with Magnus. That one was super fun. You guys should go check it out. He's one of my favorite thinkers. This one has a very special place in my heart because uh, Anatomy State is what made me jump that divide from anarchy to anarchy. And I have with me today the one who basically convinced me to read it. Uh, I was a listener of his for years. And then finally, he just was always nagging about reading this book. And then I read it and I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> and yeah, as always, go check out Top Lobster, um, toplobster.com. I have the End of the War shirt on today, the Scott Horton one. Uh, I don't know if I ever said on here before, but I've met Scott Horton in person. And he's even better in person than he is on podcast somehow. He's, you would you blow your mind. He's like just a dude, bro, like everybody else. He's fucking awesome. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring on Dave. And here he is. Hey, so, what's going on, brother? That's yeah. fucking dude. That's awesome, man. That just that just warms my heart. Every bit right? of that. Like I'm glad that I got you to fucking read that shit, and that it had the same effect on you that it had on me. And I love Top Lobster and fucking Scott Horton. Really is, dude. Like when you fucking meet him, he's just the coolest fucking dude ever. I remember, like I was a huge fan of Scott's before I ever met him, and like now we're like tight friends. But but I was a huge fan of his before we became friends, and I remember. All right, quick, we'll get into Anatomy of the State, but quick Scott Horton story. So this was back in my uh, weed-smoking days, uh, when I, the first time I met Scott Horton. Yeah, uh, he, had, he had a bowl in his hand when I met him. Yeah, so if you could imagine, right, I, I knew Scott from his appearances on the Tom Woods show, and then I got way into the Scott Horton show, and I just started listening to him. So that's where I knew him from. And then I asked him to come on my podcast, which was a small podcast at the time, a few times and and he was like oh yeah i'm down to do it and i was like what he's down to do it okay that's incredible and so like i interviewed him about foreign policy and stuff and then i was in uh his hometown doing uh comedy gigs with lewis j gomez uh who's you know the scott horton of comedy and uh so we're we're doing shows there and i i texted him and i was like hey dude i'm in your town i'm in your town like i'd love to come like meet up so we were going to hang out. It was the first time I ever met him face to face. And Lewis, go, we had bought like a little glass pipe like and, and gotten some weed in the local city that we were at. You know, it was before everything was legal and shit. And he goes, uh, and I bought the pipe. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go meet this guy, Scott Horton, who's like this brilliant fucking foreign policy analyst. And he goes, well, dude, leave the pipe with me because, like, you don't need it. You're not going to smoke with this guy. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to bring a fucking pipe to go meet <laughs> Scott Horton. And then I went and met him, and he was like, hey, dude, you want to smoke weed? I was like, yes, yes, I do, Scott Horton. And he's just the coolest fucking dude in the world. And, yeah, if you ever get a chance to hang with him, man, he is awesome. So, anyway, yeah. I, love, I love that intro. I love what you're doing, Jose. Thanks for having yeah. me on. No, my, my, for my intro, Scott, not to belabor the point, but I was like, I was like, oh, hi, Scott. You know, really, really love your work, and uh, you've had a big impact in my life. And he's like, well, you want to hit this? <laughs> like, and that's then, how you sum it up. <laughs> and then he's down to talk to you yeah. about this shit forever, which I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Like, if I meet people, like, I'm down to talk about, like, fucking libertarian shit and, the, and how evil the government and all that is. I'm down to talk about that shit till fucking three in the morning i mean i got a family and stuff now so i don't know if i would talk but if i don't have anything to do and i'm on the road i'm like let's fucking talk about this shit it's all i i 
love to fucking do. Tom Woods and Bob Murphy and those guys, I remember when we were on the Contra cruise, and they'd be like, look, I'll come up and talk to you guys for a couple hours, but then I'm going to go get some sleep because I'm a normal human being. And me and Scott would be up there like, we'll be up here till 5 a.m. What do you guys want to talk about? Yeah. No, that is that is great. For anyone listening who hasn't done Liberty events, I'm, I've been a, I'm like a homebody, so I've never really done Liberty events, except for recently. I went to the LP, uh, LP Florida convention thing, and that was amazing. And I went to the Gene Epstein debate with uh, Ben Burgess. It was amazing. Yeah, no, it's just great because yeah. it is that that too. Like I'm so used to just being around like normies and having these conversations, and I can only go so far. But once you get around your kind, you're like, oh, <laughs> it's it's great, dude. I really I really recommend it if anyone can, because you know you get lost in like the fucking Twitter libertarian world, and it's just so much different, dude. Like it's so much. Like I fucking I got people you know who like talk wild shit to me every day on Twitter, and but then I'll go to like you know, Pork Fest or Freedom Fest or like, you know, Soho Forums or like any of these fucking libertarian events. And I never have one bad interaction. It's just nothing but like these cool ass, really smart people. And so it's it, it is interesting to like show you how different that fucking how, how different real life is. Yeah, no, it is awesome. I don't know if you I know this would be a little bit out of place because this won't get released a week later, but it was kind of big news. So I'd be remiss if I didn't have you bring it up. Uh, I didn't know if you, what your thoughts on the New York City shit was today, because that uh, that dropped today and that was kind of big. So, yeah, you know. dude. I mean, that's. I think it's. I think it's a fucking really big deal and mm. really fucking. It's some really creepy shit. And yeah, so like for people who don't know, De Blasio announced the COVID passports are coming to New York City, and that's uh, you know, um, that that's a big deal. It's the biggest city in the country, and you know, there there is something to be said for as New York goes. The rest of the the country and the rest of the world goes, and uh, yeah, he announced that it's it's happening in two weeks or something like that, and then the enforcement is going to start September thirteenth. Uh, so not a lot of time until they they officially enact a an apartheid caste system in New York City, and it's and of course right now they didn't do it in the creepiest of ways. They said you could have your card, you could have your vaccine card or the app. But, you know, it's only a matter of time till they go, people are faking these cards, so we got to just do it on the app. And, and, and I think, of course, like anyone who really looks at this shit knows COVID's not going anywhere. It's going to be here forever. The vaccines, I mean, they don't give you immunity to the variants. How long is the immunity really supposed to last? What, eight months? You're going to need a new shot every year. So this is basically an announcement that this will be life from here on out in, in New York City. And it's a... Uh, it's something. It's a big deal. I think this is. I I think our best shot right now is to get as much like pushback on this right now, so that they don't enact it. I think mm -hmm. if if we let them enact it, then this is a really really dark turn. Yeah, my my my, my personal thoughts. I think they probably won't. But uh, I mean, you you know how it is that you they they pretend like they're going to take a uh, take a mile and they take a little bit less once they push back. So yeah, I mean, either way, it's going to be a sliding sliding tyranny thing. So I mean. Yeah, you're probably you're probably right about that. I also do think that as much as and, and this is something I'm kind of struggling with myself, but I think that I almost got to adjust how I'm attacking this thing, because I think the way to attack it is from the left. Like, I think the way to attack this is actually that this is going to be fucking um, this is going to disproportionately affect minorities and immigrants and you know how can people be expected to get the vaccine when they don't have good access to this that, which aren't the arguments i like to make 
Like I like to just make the arguments on the grounds of liberty, but the truth is that the right wing in America is already against this shit. The trick here is to actually get the, and when I say the left, I mean like the left half of America. If you can peel any of them away, then you're going to have a better, a better shot at uh, fucking ending this shit. So, you know, if you think voter ID is fucking racist, <laughs> what the fuck is a COVID passport? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this thing works. I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of they're going to shoot themselves in the foot, too. So I think, you know, people are moving, you know, in droves from these places. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's it's, it's good to see the silver lining and things, especially, you know, liberty-wise. But let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, being as this is the Anarchist Handbook, I, I didn't figured maybe you want to give a minute to give your thoughts. And I mean, you know, your homies with with uh, malice and all that shit. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I know personally myself, I've been reading through it and I love it because it's great to get all these different anarchist thinkers from different, different perspectives. You can always get interesting thoughts from different schools of thoughts. Um, and then also it's been a nice, like there's a lot of shit I've read already. So it's like nostalgic. Like I've got to reread yeah. it on the estate. So I don't know if you've been reading through it or not. Uh, yeah, seems- no, I have. I read through the whole thing and uh, it's, and there were, there were several essays in there that I had never read before. And um, it's, I can't overstate how incredible it is and how, what what an amazing accomplishment it is that that Michael put this out. I mean, when he first told me he was going to do this, um, I thought like, oh, what a neat little side project while you're working on the new book. Like, oh, you put out a collection of essays. You know, I, I, I put it out like I, uh, um, the, the Tom Woods book that I have uh, right here. Who, who dared to say no to war, which is a great book. And and Tom put out this, like, uh, with a left-wing guy, put out this collection of, of essays that anti-war people have written since, like, 1812, like, against every war, and left, right, all over the spectrum. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, that that's pretty cool. Oh, all over the political spectrum, not the spectrum that libertarians, uh, you know, <laughs> deal in. Uh, but, but I, you know, it was like, oh, this is a cool little project. But the idea that this went, this became the number one book on Amazon and was like, I mean, it's just, it's really incredible. The, you know, like, look, whatever, um, I know you're, you're like an agorist and I'm, I'm, you know, more of a, like, I I don't even know if there's really that much of a difference, but I'm more of a, like, spread the message through the political process type guy, even though that's never really been what I've been about until I'm just flirting with the idea. Now I'm just spreading the message through podcasting and stand up comedy and shit like that. But if what we're all about are the ideas of liberty and what could you say that's ever really done that? Like the Ron Paul campaign spread them to a lot of fucking people. Uh, I guess maybe you could say like Jordan Peterson in some way, like really spread not explicitly libertarian but the idea of personal responsibility and taking individualism of your yeah. life individualism right um but this is like some thomas Paine shit like the idea that you just have this fucking little book of pamphlets that's got that's become the number one thing actually introducing the ideas of anarchy in our times it's it's incredible i'm like so excited to see what this is going to mean in the future this might this might have sparked more you know minds than anything that we've ever seen so it's so fucking cool you know yeah no it's wild and it's a sign of the times you see i mean what's clicking uh, i mean that's clicking for one reason or another i know a lot of people try to attribute to the fact that he had like a large audience or whatever I'm like no that's i mean to some extent it's clicking with the public and they're they're interested in new ideas so well just just yeah. to put it in perspective right which is what what's interesting to me is that when the new right came out he went on rogan 
he went on Dave Rubin. He, I think he went on Tim Pool. I, I think, he, like, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't remember actually if he went on Tim Pool to promote that book specifically. But he's been on there. He's like one of the favorite people of that show. He, the Lex uh, uh, Friedman thing. Like, he's Michael Malice is like the the darling of like all of these huge fucking audiences, and and that's just to name a few. And none of those, none of the the stuff he's done has had the success of this book. And I don't know if he understands exactly why. Whatever it was, it just went out. It had a catchy title, and and people jumped on it and and have read it. So I don't know, but it's incredible. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I would say for the same reason why it's done so well is the same reason why Michael Malice has done so well. It's because he exudes these principles. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. He's going to do what he's going to do. Uh, he is anarchism embodied, essentially. <laughs> yeah, there's just something. Yeah. There's something really compelling about malice like he's just there's i don't know he's got a thing about him it's his fucking like his irreverence and his intelligence and just his fucking like he just doesn't give a shit he's just him unapologetically and it's great and the fact that he has particularly for me you know um the fact that he has this piece in there means so much because this was the the piece that that really changed my life like mike cernovich just tweeted the other day and he goes what's a book that changed your life and i my response was anatomy of the state by murray rothbard which i guess technically is not a book but still it's somewhere it's it's more than an essay it's like a super essay it's like a compilation of essays (laughs) it's kind of a pamphlet uh, but but you know, to me, I just go. That's the one I'd I'd always recommend, and I, I've I'll always said this on my podcast that th- that is the one that I'd go listen. It's like what is it? It's like sixty pages, and you could you'll you could finish it in one sitting. You know, two if you want to break it up. But you fucking you sit down and you read that, and and if you come at things from the perspective I have, it. It is like groundbreaking. And I know some other people have, you know, maybe you've read like Spooner already or you're already in. And, and so it'd be like, OK, I, I, these ideas aren't totally foreign to me. It's not quite as like, oh, my God, I've never heard anything like this. But if you haven't and I also like it'll change your life. And I think to me personally, it's the best little essay on anarchism that that I've ever read. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it probably takes different stuff for different people because I mean, it really depends. I feel like Spooner takes like a legal approach at attacking the problem. Uh, I mean, my opinion, anatomy of state is just straight up just a defining terms, basically, is all that it is. Like, and that by itself is enough to be like, holy fuck. <laughs> so when I, that's, it's so funny that you say. So when I uh, I, I tweeted that out at, at uh, Cernovich when he he asked what's the book that changed your life, and I tweeted that and uh, that Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard, and then I saw someone commented on it on Twitter and said, hey, at Twitter support, what's this doing in the science section? And I have a like a big enough account on Twitter now that every now that my things will end up in some section or whatever it's like, and he goes, what's this doing in the science section? And I just responded, it belongs there. <laughs> and I'm like, no, this, because it really is scientific. Like what he's saying there is like, it, it's not even... I mean, okay, there are some things in there that that you could categorize as just arguments or opinionated statements. Speculation, yeah. But so much of it is just like scientific fact. This is what this is. Like, and so I love that. I love that about it. 
I mean, another honorable mention I'd probably say is maybe like most dangerous superstition. I feel like it's probably good for people coming to the left because they attack it from the like atheism religion type perspective. Uh, so, but yeah, but no, those are like that's, the main uh, ones. That's that's Larkin Rose's yeah. Uh, yeah. piece. Okay, I've, I've that's never not read an essay that, though. But so. I've, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a big ass book. So it's not. I feel like there's something to a small piece of work because I feel like we we forget a lot of people don't read. Like, and for yeah. me, that was the biggest thing for Nami. I didn't even wasn't even really reading. I read comic books, as you can see behind me, and I didn't oh, yeah. really read books like i read like comic books and then so then i started now i read books because i'm a big boy but uh fucking at the time and it sounds stupid to us but it's like people don't normally read books so giving them something small they're like hey here's like 30 pages go read this this is a that's a lot easier than hey here's you know most dangerous superstition which is a couple hundred pages which isn't even a big book (laughs) and 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 that is one of the things that i love about uh rothbard is that and, and it's not that he didn't write things that were for academics or intellectuals. I mean, man, economy and state is not easy to get through, and he's like he he's the the best in that world as well. But he always kept his eye on that, like talking to regular people. And I've always been a big believer in in that idea, and probably because I'm like not that smart. So I'm like, okay, this is this is my role in this. But I always liked the idea of like, there should be a kind of populist libertarian uprising, and that we should all be able to understand this shit in the same way that if you were like an abolitionist who opposed slavery, you don't have to fucking have a PhD in economics to understand that like, well, actually, it's a more efficient system to pick cotton if everyone is voluntarily exchanging and blah, like, who cares? The point is that your average person could understand slavery is immoral and should be abolished. And that's like, so that's always been like my angle on this shit, that there's like any regular retard like you or me should be able to understand that this this whole game is fucking, first off, it's evil, it's unnecessary, and it's a racket. Those are like the three important things to get. Yeah, which is another good book. Uh, <laughs> Smedley Butler. <laughs> yeah. War is a racket. Uh, let's yeah, go into the meat book. of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book, actually. You know, he actually comes from the left, I believe, if I recall. But it's still a... Yeah. But uh, let's get into it. The first, like I, said, I was saying before, it's kind of a compilation of essays. I think it's six pieces. Uh, yeah. It kind of The first is what the state is not. So I don't know if you want to give your ideas of what the state is not from a Rothbardian perspective, obviously. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's brilliant that he opens with this because it's already like you'd think if you're if you're giving the anatomy of the state, you'd open with what the state is. But he opens with what the state is not. And, and there's a reason for that. And you start to understand that pretty quickly because you realize that it's like the first thing you have to do if you're going to talk about what the state is, is tear apart all of the bullshit ideas of what the state is. And it's such, it's already like an interest, it's it's such a fascinating thing to be an anarchist, right? Like, it's, we live under a government, and every nation that you can think of, that you know of, lives under a government, and then you're sitting here saying, we don't need that. And almost everyone is just taking it as a given that obviously you do. Obviously you do need to live under a state. But then you realize there's like, oh, there's all these brilliant thinkers throughout history who have, you know, really argued with a lot of valid points that you don't need to live under a state. Uh, I remember uh, Stefan Molyneux, the great, heroic, perfect, and always correct Stefan Molyneux, 
uh, one one said that it, someone asked him, uh, they were like, well, how come there hasn't been like so many more great anarchist thinkers before, you know, Rothbard and all these people? And he goes, yeah, there probably were, but they probably got, you know, killed right away. And you're like, I always remember being like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Like, yeah, there probably were a whole bunch of people who were really smart and were like, oh, you don't need a state. But they were at a time where you could just kill them and then no one ever knew that they said that. But so he goes through the the myths of what the state is and tears everyone to shreds. And the, the idea that the state is us or the state is the nation or the state is the land and the hills and, and, and just tears them all to pieces. Well, if the state is, uh, if we are the state, if we are the government, then I guess a government could never be tyrannical, right? I guess I the guess, Jews killed themselves. Yeah, so it was a mass suicide <laughs> in Nazi Germany. It's, oh my God! But the but but by definition, a government could never really be evil if you were the government because you you just kind of be doing it to yourself. Or maybe maybe they could be evil, but certainly not tyrannical because it's it, it would all be kind of voluntary. So yeah, the Jews killed themselves and the blacks enslaved themselves and all this other shit. So. Yeah, that that falls apart. And and I think the most important thing, which I think goes on to inform later Rothbard that he gets at is the difference between kind of the nation and the state, the idea that like the people or the hills or the landscape or none of this is the, the state that this is completely separate that that, you know, you me and you could go for like a fucking, you know, a walk in like a nice park. All right, let's say we bring our wives. Let's not make this so gay. Me and you and our wives go for a nice walk in a park and go, oh, look at the birds and look at the fucking trees and all this. That has nothing to do with Joe Biden deciding that he's going to fucking appoint whoever is the Fed chairman. Like, right? These aren't – why do we look at it like that? You know, it also uh, – it, it reminds me of uh, Lou Rockwell, the great heroic Lou Rockwell who uh, – gets, you know, shit from all these fucking uh, woke libertarians or whatever. But he wrote this piece. I don't know if you if you saw this at the beginning of COVID. It was the probably the like, next one. Yeah. In, <laughs> at, at, right around April, like right after the lockdown started, he was like, listen, the mighty duck, <laughs> the mighty ducks are out of control. Uh, no, but did you, did you see this piece he wrote on China? Um, it was like right after the COVID virus was like really hitting uh, America and the lockdowns all happened. And he wrote this piece where he was like, listen, the Chinese people are not your enemies. Like the Chinese government is evil. And you know who the biggest victim of the Chinese government is? The Chinese people. And the Chinese people tried to save you from this virus. And there were these doctors who like, you know, called it out right away and they got thrown in jail and all this shit and killed and, you know. And like this guy who they claim is this like fucking awful right wing bigot. He was actually the one who, when it really was, was like a tough time to stand up and said that said the most important thing. You don't hate the Chinese people. They didn't do anything to you. And then you start to realize that you're like, oh yeah, actually the Chinese people in in a sense, like I, I'm, I don't, I'm not a Democrat, low, small D Democrat or anything like that. But in a sense, they don't even vote for fucking their, their, representatives they're they just are ruled by them so like yeah it's like that that's the important rothbardian uh like understanding that you this this the, the government is not you they are not the people 
And the same way that it, all those people who hated Donald Trump, like your, your left-wing friends who hated Donald Trump, they weren't Donald Trump for four years. And the, all these people who hate Biden, they're not Biden for these years. And even the people who like them aren't them. It's a completely separate thing. It's this entity over here. It is not the country. It's, 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 it's an insight that uh, Bastiat had you know, many years before Rothbard ever wrote anything, that the that society and the government are separate things. Yeah. A very important thing to understand. I mean, personally, I think he started out with that chapter just so he, he had an excuse to have that based-ass line about the, the, the Jews. Because uh, that, that, I just thought it was so funny. I forgot about that line. It literally is like, I don't know if yeah. you've seen the, the phenomenon online, like the six million posting, where you're just yeah. poking at the number just to like yeah. make people irritated. Like, because the joke is like no one really is actually. I mean, there are people who are questioning the whole guys, but mostly it's just teasing people that get upset that you would even question the number. But like that legit was like Rothbard six million posting in his time, and it it was <laughs> such a good way to start out the beginning. It, yeah, it, yeah. I, I put a tweet out. I was like, I forgot how based Rothbard was. <laughs> oh, dude, he was the most based. And it's funny that people start. What, what was the essay? I don't know if you have it in front of you, but what year was this written in? The seventies, mid seventies. Let me see. I do have it in front of me. 1974. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so right in the middle of the 70s, and people will be like, "Oh, Rothbard changed so much in the 90s," and you're like, "Dude, read his shit." Like, you're someone who like didn't read his shit the whole time. He was based the whole fucking time. You know, he even when he was like way on the left, he was based his fucking shit. Not that he was on the left, but that he was, you know, uh, said that libertarianism was way on the left and allied with people on the left. But the whole time. He was always Rothbard from beginning to fucking end. He just got more information and got wiser and shit, but his philosophy always stayed the same. Yeah, I think he's just figuring things out. I think we forget how how young this movement is. So yeah. like, and so with him, it's it's only fair that like, and even nowadays, I mean, you know, we you touched on earlier, and uh, I'm an agorist. You're more like utilizing LPMC. We still don't really know the proper praxis to move things forward. No, We're just one hundred percent. And and <laughs> so. I think. As I've said uh, many times before, I think we should be very humble when it comes to strategy, yep. because the the truth is that every libertarian that this movement is what I mean, fifty years old at most. That's not a very long time. I mean, fifty years is is just not a long time. I, My mom feels, was three when this was written. <laughs> right, right. Like I, you know, fifty years feels like a really long time. But like I also, I don't feel that old, and I'm almost forty. You know, <laughs> like this is not that old. Maybe it's a little bit older than fifty. But you know, like it's it's really not much older. It's it's a very new movement, and everyone so far, from a strategic point of view, has failed. So you know we should all move forward with a little bit of humility and say yeah we don't we don't exactly know and that is yeah. for me personally well you'll see it, in general in libertarianism i never i know i'm, I'm like kind of known for getting in these like fucking like libertarian beefs and shit but i don't think you could find anyone where i've thrown the first punch i'm almost always like responding oh if someone attacks me then i'll i'll go at him pretty hard and i'm fucking you know I'm I'm a pretty petty and vicious dude, so like if someone goes at me, I'll go at them back at them very hard. But I can identify with that. <laughs> yeah, like, but I don't, I don't hate, you know, agorists or liberty Republicans or anyone else who has a different strategy than me. I, you know, I understand maybe maybe they're right, and so I don't want to stop them from doing what they're doing because maybe that is the the right way to do it. Or you know, the Bitcoin guys or any of that. All of them come at me, but I really don't. 
I, maybe that's the right thing. I just I think this LPMC thing is the way to go, but I might be wrong. So yeah, no, you literally said everything I I would say to the opposite effect, and I think that's I do think it's a super important. I've been trying to stress that as much as I can that most of us don't know the fuck we're we're just when you're talking about tactics. I know a lot of people like try to make it like philosophical, but it's like. We're mostly talking tactics here, so I mean, we're just yeah. pulling shit out of our ass. We don't know, <laughs> and that's and and it's a very different. I mean, this is outside of anatomy of the state for sure, mm-hmm. but it's a very different conversation of what is your philosophical end goal, or what is your philosophy, and what is the best way to get there, because one of the things that I think libertarians have a lot of trouble with is that perhaps the way to get there is not completely in line with your stated philosophical principles. That's a thing that really trips libertarians up. Like, would you violate the non-aggression principle if it would lead to a greater, you know, amount of non-aggression in the future? A very difficult thing. I have trouble with that myself, too. I think a lot of libertarians are, are struggling with that at the moment. You heard it here, guys. Dave Smith's the next Pol Pot, all right? <laughs> if we have to slaughter millions. <laughs> all right, let's move on to what the state is. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like the most, I don't know, this is the most scientific uh, part of, of the fucking, uh, of, of the pamphlet. And it's interesting because, you know, there's a whole actual academic uh, uh you know, category known as political science. And yet this isn't where they start. But who could really argue with this? And what Rothbard lays out is that the state is a group of people who claim a legal monopoly on the initiation of violence. And I I got to say, since I've read that, and, and, it not, and I was not an anarchist when I read this piece, and I wasn't an anarchist for probably a full year after I read this piece, but this always just gnawed away at me that you re- there's really no argument against that. That is a factual statement. As much as it's a factual statement to say, like, the brim of your hat is red and there are comic books in back of you, it's a factual statement to say that the state is a group of people who maintain a legal monopoly on the initiation of violence. And so it's it's fine if anyone wants to have any other political ideology uh, and, and justify that, justify a monopoly on the initiation of violence, but it's crazy that so many of them don't even address that, won't, won't even acknowledge that that is what the state is. And so it's, it's interesting, like, you know, this was the first time I'd ever really heard anyone put it exactly that way. But once you look at things that way, it's, it's hard to unsee it because it's just, it, it's just factually true. Yeah, no, he, he does a good job. Like, I like how he uses Oppenheimer to, as a demonstration of like how the state is essentially like parasitic. And I, how did he bring it? Let me see. I got my notes. Let's, let's say exactly what it is. It's a... Uh... Fuck, I moved it in my shit. Damn it. I got it right here. Uh, Oppenheimer, fucking uh, two ways. There's a, the economic means and there's a the political uh-huh. means. Yeah. So political would be the parasitic and the economic would be productive. And it just makes it an easy way of understanding. And that's absolutely what it is. We pr- The people produce it and the state is a parasite off of it. 
Is this when uh, the the line um, um, production always precedes predation? Yeah, it's in there. So I know it's that's, in there in that rough in area. It. That's that's a really brilliant line, man, yeah. and it really makes you understand everything, right? Like, yeah. in, that's it's such a profound line. That, Simple but profound. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That you're like, well, listen, no one can steal anything from you until it's been produced. So there has to be this separation between making something and stealing something. And of course, Oppenheimer's uh, 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 concept is, I mean, pretty, again, pretty undeniable and scientific that if me and you are going to have some type of uh, like trade, there's really only two ways it can go down. Either we both agree on this or one of us is fucking strong arming the other one. And that's it. There's really no other options. And everything can, it really is a true binary that everything can be broken down to either, well, we both want to do this, or one of us is kind of like imposing our will on the other one. And which one is the state, and what is the state other than just the, the best, most badass version of imposing yourself on the other one? Yeah, which I mean, he points out in this section. He, he this is actually one of the most genius things I thought of this section was the, uh, what what did I call it? I called it the uh, fucking conquering tribe theory, or mm-hmm. or or something like that. I forget how I phrased it, but essentially it's just the theory that it's just a band that. And this was off Rothbard's conception. I just remember reading it initially and thought it was so genius. It was just a band of criminals that finally realized like, hey, if I settle in this area, and then over time they become synonymous with the land, and they just become right. like, oh, these are. You know, these have always been here. Like, no, they haven't. They just seem that way because they've integrated into you. Which so. is which is so like and, and then if you listen to that, right, that idea and then start looking at the world and you realize, like, again, this is just factually true. I mean, like why? You know, we, we think about things like um, it's just kind of a given that you're like, OK, so we have uh, South America is below us. You have all these countries, you know, like, you know, Mexico and. Honduras and Guatemala and fucking El Salvador or whatever. And you're like, well, they all speak Spanish. Why do they speak Spanish? They didn't all just decide we want to speak Spanish one day. They were fucking conquered by Spain. They like, you know, it's that that's literally the history of what happened, right? And that and the history of what happened here. Why do we speak English? Because the fucking, you know, English came over and fucking conquered. And so that's, like, there's really no debating that the history of how states are established is that one group who's conquering settles down and decides we're the fucking people now. And then eventually everyone starts looking at them like, yeah, all right, I guess that's who we are. Yeah. Uh, let's move to the next one. How the state preserves itself. This is one of the ones that we could probably spend like an hour and a half on. There's like, <laughs> I literally made a bullet point of each of his points and there's something ridiculous, like 15 plus different points he brings <laughs> up. So this one's not as easily digestible. So we'll probably cover some more of the, uh, the well, highlights. <laughs> well, what do you think? What do you think is the most important shit to get to in this one? I mean, we mentioned the, pre- the previous, I do think he was touching on something when he basically, es- essentially he talked about the intelligentsia and how I mean, yeah. he didn't put it that way. And uh, how it kind of ties into the cathedral, which ties into like the main point of this whole yeah. chapter is that it's through ideology. It's the main, the the overarching point of this 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 part of the essay. Yeah. So and, this uh, is what's yeah. right. This is what's so interesting about anatomy of the state is that it's so much more than just anatomy of the state. It's so much more than just the anatomy of the state. Right. It's also 
all of this other shit like kind of put together that really gives you a broader idea of of how to look at the world and so one of the things that you see in there is that he basically is talking about what a lot of what has been popularized as the cathedral way before anyone was talking about that and and the idea that there is this kind of you you raise up this class of intellectuals that are going to like be the ones who defend the state and he he, he uh talks about how it's obvious that the that uh why the state would want these intellectuals to defend them but then he also talks about why the intellectuals would want to defend the state and how this whole like perverse incentives are are, are created and that the the intellectuals well, why are they defending the state so much? And you go, well, how much value is there for so many of these intellectuals if there wasn't a state? Yeah. Really, not nearly as much, if right? If I can throw a quote in here, he says, sure. if, and I feel like as an important endpoint too here, uh, so for the intellectuals will be handsomely rewarded for the important function they perform for the state rulers of which group they now become a part, which I feel like that last part's important. Because I feel like we tend to, and this is kind of like similar to the uh, public-private shit we, we always encounter, mm-hmm. too, where it's like, I feel like we need, as ANCAPs, you know, need to get past this binary thinking and start, in some sense, to start thinking more along the lines of a spectrum. Because, you know, say with something like the cathedral or the intelligentsia, they are, I mean, maybe it's not fair to say they are the state, but they are sort of. And the same thing goes for, like, Amazon or Google or, like, you know, and so, it's, I mean... It's kind of the same idea. We're like, yes, they aren't essentially interchangeable to state, but they are to some extent, what, 90%? I don't fucking know, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, <laughs> uh, part of it, like, it kind of proves uh, um, uh, Curtis Yarvin right, but then it also kind of lets you know that this is not that original of an idea from him, that it actually came from our camp, not someone who's, like, saying they're rejecting our camp, right? And so, yeah, there is... The, the truth is, if you look at someone like Max Boot, what is his value really in the market versus what is his value when there's this whole state apparatus? And uh, I think we could all agree it's much higher when there's this state apparatus. And if you look at, you know, so many of these examples today, I mean, what is what is Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson's like bottom line with or without the state. I mean, you know, okay, you can say they're private companies, but all of their research was just funded by uh, taxpayer dollars and their vaccine is being distributed and purchased with taxpayer dollars and their liability is being covered with taxpayer dollars. So, geez, I mean, I don't know. I mean, okay, I guess they're not exactly the state, but... (laughs) To, to consider to say no it's just a private company or something like that would be so ridiculous and and the same with the big tech companies and all of that like it, you know when you have some some third party that's going to go in and uh uh tell facebook what is uh you know um problematic fake news domestic terrorist content but they just got a million dollars from the department of homeland security that year well that's not exactly a private company and this this more and more, I think, today is something libertarians really have to grapple with. And, of course, Rothbard was right about it in 1974.
Yeah, I do like how he also talked about how it, it, like the state starts to integrate itself into the the place of which it has settled. So it becomes one with it, and it like kind of uh, one example I came to mind when I, I mean I'm I'm just got out of the military. I fucking so it like it was one something that was on top of my head was military graveyards like and just like what like even as an ANCAP the thoughts that it that evokes from you even still mm-hmm. as an ANCAP you're like I mean there there's your fucking conditioning right there and it's like I mean we can understand that it's like well I mean they shouldn't have done that there were people who volunteered for it though they got duped into it whatever blah 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 it's not good but still to some extent there is a small tinge in almost all of us no matter how pure you are where it's just like this little bit of patriotism that flares up you know what i mean i don't know if oh, you yeah. still feel it but oh sure yeah sure. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's no a perfect ab- absolutely i mean look it's all of this stuff is is done for a reason and all you know think about everything that the the government insists on uh controlling and and th- this is always something interesting to me like once you really take the anarchist pill and you you look back at statists even minarchists who, you know, we there's a lot of in the libertarian world who are like, well, you know, we really do recognize that the government's very, very bad, but they still should do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, why? And why did you pick those things? You know, the government should run like the courts and write the laws and do national defense and police and schools or you know like whatever uh, some minarchist might think like why those things those things seem kind of odd like why not you know i don't know why not government like build the lumber or something you know like why why is it these things rather than those and you realize that these are the things in many sense in many cases that um have an emotional pull on you and really make you go like you know that's well that's something kind of really integrated to my life why does the government have to run the post office like why yeah. why is that and 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 there's that well oh that yeah that's kind of the mass communication you know and why like and and there's so many things like that that you realize that really do they they really do integrate themselves into your lives where you're like oh okay i kind of need this now and i, I and and particularly things that you feel an emotional connection to. But I also, I agree with you. If you see like a, you know, a mass grave of all these soldiers who have fought, I don't look at that and go like, oh, these statist pawns or something. I think about like, you know, the guy who was just like that dude who had a couple daughters and a wife and, you know, and and gave his life up for what he thought was defending his country. So yeah, there's all, this is, this is how they ingrain themselves. Yeah, to finish up the section, and it's uh, really, uh, it almost borderlines makes Rothbard seem uh, prophetic here, is he mentions how science will become a method for them to control. Um, I mean, he was actually speaking more in an economic sense at the time, but it's still like, yeah. well, you hit the nail on the head there, buddy. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he was speaking, uh, like he used, a robber who justified his theft by saying they really helped his victims by spending giving a boost to retail trade would find few converts and he kind of ties it into Keynesian economics and how that applies but it is uh, obviously you know we're in the time of the couve and that uh, applies here as well so yeah <laughs> a little no, eye opening rereading this <laughs> he's absolutely right about that and if you get removed from what people are actually doing it's very easy to go down that road it's very easy to to say that someone who robs from someone is really helping out if you think about what they're doing with the money. 
And I think he got this right away. And 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 it's really true, you know? Like, I mean, on the most, like, basic level, like, I could, I don't know, like, if someone, like, if, if me and a group of people killed you and harvested your organs and saved someone else's life, we could probably really convince you that we did something good. We saved their life, you know? And, and so if you remove yourself from what's actually being done, the anatomy of, of the state, <laughs> then it's it's very easy to, to in some quote-unquote scientific way convince you that they've done something good yeah and here here come here we get to the section that this is what i don't know about you but this is the section that did it for me this is when i was like oh fuck um because i mean i feel like we get tied in this religious thinking with like the constitution and shit and this is one is like really got me how the state transcends its limits because it kind of points out like because you know as a minarchist you're like well if you know if we only just got good people in there and you know we could make it better and it's kind of like no, the incentives are go the entire opposite way, and it's going to go to shit. You might end up with a DeSantis here and there, but it's going to shit. <laughs> and uh, it kind of points out how these limiting agents that the state create or it makes it seem like you know, like this is supposed to limit things, just legitimizes it. So yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on that. So yeah, sure. Well, I mean, look, even even DeSantis or some example <laughs> like that, it's like he's just and he is, but he's just great. Because he wasn't so horrible, you know, it's um, so uh, I, I think that that's right. And I think that one of the um, one of the most important things for anarchists to realize is that in many ways, and this is like kind of a contradictory uh, um, thought, but it but it's correct, is that the more limited the state is, the more revered it is, and therefore the more power it has to expand. And that is the story of the United States of America, that you can you can have all of these fancy ideas about checks and balances. But once you create what Rothbard, you know, described as what the state is, once you create a group of people who have a monopoly on the, the legal initiation of violence, then the, the incentive is going to be for them to expand that that power. And how do you, how do you expect to create that? And not and and I said this in a um, uh, when Pete Quinones interviewed me for his uh, documentary um, on the, the the monopoly of violence was really great. If anyone mm -hmm. hasn't seen it, but I my, my thing that I said was I I go uh, you know people say anarchists are utopian, but isn't it so much more utopian to think that you could create a monopoly on the initiation of violence or the legal initiation of violence? and expect them to like keep themselves in check that that to me seems to be like the most utopian i i actually would argue that i think that's more utopian than even the communists are that you know the the idea that that would stay maybe it's not more utopian but it's as utopian and and we should be better than that like we should understand that like of course the incentives will all line up for them to empower themselves more and more and i think this is the section where he talks about the supreme court mm -hmm. and, and all of that other stuff and and how you know you have these things like the the supreme court where you're like oh okay so this the supreme court will rule on the lower courts but they will be appointed by the president and confirmed by the senate and they're going to check the power of government like i mean just just like imagine this in, in any other common sense way like if you you know if there was some organization that was supposed to keep a check on me 
but I got to pick who the guy was and my wife had to appoint them. <laughs> like what? It's yeah. like, oh, I, I nominate Louis J. Gomez, you know, and then like my wife would be like, oh, yeah, we confirm him. And I'd be like, all right, he's don't worry. He's going to check uh, whether I'm going too far. But probably I'm going to end up getting a lot more power that way. Yeah. And this is what you've seen. The Supreme Court over the years has just granted more and more power to the federal government. And every time, you know, there's like, well, this might be unconstitutional. Well, we'll take it to the Supreme Court. And look, every now and then they might make a good decision. But overall, what's the trend over the last hundred years? More and more power in the hands of the federal government. Yeah, things I mean, that, he, things that are blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah, like he points out here, they, they call the New Deal constitutional. So, I yeah. mean, but yeah, the funny thing is that was legit the point that did it for me. As stupid as that sounds, and it's like one of those things that looking back, you're like, well, no shit. But like, right. but like at the time, you're like, yeah, you know, checks and balances. But then once you go one step further, you're like, oh, well, that's like paper fucking thin. <laughs> like, well, like yeah. this is just trash. <laughs> and, well, right. So yeah. it's like, what are really checks and balances? Mm. What would really keep a power source in line? Yeah. And and like, okay, so here's what really keeps power sources in line. Customers mm. that have the, the voluntary option to leave. Like that really keeps power sources in line. Like if, if you know, just in the, in the most simplest of terms, but if a... Whatever it is, uh, if a restaurant, if, if, you know, me and my wife have like one, our favorite restaurant that we love to, to go out to or order from or whatever, and their food starts sucking and we stop going to them and then they're like, oh shit, we need to get your money back. So we got to make the food better. I mean, that really keeps them in line. But once you have a monopoly, you, you lose all of that. And so of course there's nothing to incentivize them to, to control their own product or their, the, the value of their product or to, to keep their own power in check. And, and the irony is that this is what usually the big argument against anarchism is, is that there'd be some type of monopoly that would rise up. And so in, instead of that, we have a guaranteed monopoly known as the state, a monopoly on the most important things. Yeah, no. Uh, he actually addressed this too, and how the only way this would work in, in this essay addressed it the only way, and he was doing it in light of like the Supreme Court interpreting interpreting the Constitution. He said like basically the only way it would work because he referenced Calhoun, I guess, who said it would it would Calhoun's theory was it would work on a state like if the states could were the ones that determined it and that like they could like essentially like kind of like nullification type stuff. But Rothbard's like, well, why stop there? And he's like, you know, we go to the individual, and that's the only way it works. But obviously. You know, once you go to the individual level, in essence, the state is dissolved. So, like, right. Right. You know. <laughs> right. So it just he just takes you through the logic of it till you get to the point of anarchy. Right. Yeah. And 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 that's exactly right. And and so it's like, why why would you like want a monopoly on any of these levels? If you're if you have a monopoly and then there's some other monopoly that can kind of like check that one, like, well, well, why would you want that? Why wouldn't you want to just like to take this down to the, 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 the next logical conclusion, which is that like, okay, and then people under that can leave and people under that can leave, which by the way, if, if you talk to most minarchists, like hardcore libertarian minarchists, they end up getting there, even if they don't admit that they're an anarchist. If you end up like talking to them and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's voluntary taxation and then you can leave if you want to and they can leave if they want to. And you're like, well, you're an anarchist now. That's yeah. where you are. 
not to bring up he who shall not be named, but I do remember the uh, it was Archie mentioned in some shit once the, the exact thing. He's like, well, I you know I'm a minarchist, but I think that uh, taxes should be voluntary, and I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> well, well, once anyone it, listen, once anyone gets to that point where they're like a minarchist, but everything's voluntary. Then the, the next question is just, but well, it's like one degree from being semantic. So the next question after that is just like, okay, but what if like a group of people don't like their government and everything's voluntary, so they're going to go form their own. Is that okay? Okay. Now take that to the individual. What if one individual doesn't like them and they're going to take responsibility for themselves and go far? Now, is that okay? Would you initiate violence against them? Or would you not? So if look, if you believe in the non-aggression principle, the only logical conclusion is anarchy. And that might make some people uncomfortable, but you can either bail from the idea of anarchy or bail from the idea of the non-aggression principle. But they're, they're going to conflict at some point. You can't like say, you know, um, whatever, there's some of these like um, objectivists I know I, I, I've heard Yarn Brook say this before, who I hung out with at Freedom Fest. Very nice guy. But uh, I don't like some of the stuff that he said, you know, about Ron Paul and the Mises types. But, uh, but you know, I've heard him say before where he's like, well, I believe in the non-aggression principle. And you're like, okay, but can people leave this government? And they're like, no. Well, they can't. You're like, okay, well, then you're going to have to violate the non-aggression principle if someone wants to leave and you won't let them. So – it's got to be one or the other. The only consistent application of the non-aggression principle lead, leads you to anarchy and particularly anarcho-capitalism. Yeah. No, I mean, I can only really uh, like I can only really respect the minarchist position if they at least are honest enough to be like, well, it's evil, but it's necessary. But because like yes. most of them won't even admit it's evil. Like if you can at least admit it's evil, but it's, you think it's necessary, whatever. Now it's a different discussion. But yes, no, yeah. I agree with you. So that that is the only like um, legitimate minarchist position is that this is a necessary evil which is what my position was before i abandoned minarchy to become an anarchist was i was like well you know it's evil you're right but it's just a necessary evil however if you're going to say that it's a necessary evil then you start to deal with other problems which is that you're going to say well what exactly is the necessary evil and how evil is that and how exactly do you prove that that's necessary uh, you know, it's like, so what exactly is it? It's like, um, so rights protection, it, it has to be, you know, cops basically have to be a monopoly, right? We have to guarantee that there's cops for, say, poor people who maybe couldn't afford, you know, rights protection if it wasn't for the state or, or national defense or something like that, right? Or like, right, like what are the most basic things you could like I'm I'm like not even rhetorically just genuinely asking you like what are the most basic things if you were going to go down that like well it's a necessary evil what like courts cops military yeah that's what most people go with which is ironically right. like you know you think of it now as an ant cap and you're like what the fuck right so but that's my point <laughs> is that once you start just like act exactly like once you start actually thinking about it you're like okay so your argument is that these things are necessary to like you're not concerned that rich people wouldn't be able to have their own private defense and their own private you know whatever arbitration so you're concerned about poor people having their own what fucks poor people over more than the cops the criminal justice system and the military 
right yeah. now. So, you know, again, you're like, oh, okay, so you're, you, you in general, this is the minarchist position, like in general, you understand how terrible monopoly is, monopolies are, but you're going to enforce monopolies on the least privileged amongst us in their most vulnerable areas. So, yeah. you know, it all falls apart. All right, let's move on to what the state fears. And, and, he, and this one was short. He says it's basically war and revolution, and uh, which ironically are probably the two things that help it further its power more too as well. So it's kind of this balancing act for the state. Does any of you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think, I think there's something really important about that, and it's probably what, you know, for, for us, what's the most valuable thing to, to learn from, and I think he's absolutely right. That's what the state fears most. I mean, how, how can a state be overthrown? other than war or revolution. I, I think he's right. Those are the two options. And so you see this constant balancing act um, where the state is terrified. They're, I mean, they're not making it up. They are actually afraid of Iran. They're actually afraid of China. They're actually afraid of North Korea. And particularly with the American empire, it's because they cannot dominate these people. And people they cannot dominate are pose a threat to them. Like I've, I've talked about this a lot on my show where we might, you know, if they go, well, Iran is a threat to the United States of America, me and you might look at that like, what the fuck do you mean? They're not a threat to me or you or our families or anything we care about, but they are certainly a threat to our, you know, military's capacity to dominate the Middle East. I mean, they are. And so they, they kind of are a threat to America, the empire. And then when you see revolution... I mean, look, think about how they reacted to January 6th. Think about how they reacted to Donald Trump being elected. Yeah, this is what they're really afraid of. But if we want to be stealthy and and figure out how we could maybe fight back against this thing, we should notice what they're afraid of. And th this is something I talk a lot about, that, you know, they're, they do really seem to be very concerned with the the people rising up, which makes sense in a way, right? Like, if you were, let's let's say you're like a crony capitalist, for lack of a better term. I don't like that term very much, but, you know, you guys know what I mean. Um, if you're a crony capitalist who's in bed with the government and just making money hand over fist, you know, you're just crushing the game. And you, uh, you've got some fucking government, de you know, monopoly no bid contract or something like that and you're just killing it what are you afraid of what actually what is your fear well I, the only the the biggest fear is that the people rise up and drag you out of your fucking mansion and rip you limb from limb in front of your fucking wife and children that's your biggest fear and that's happened throughout history before you know like what's Gaddafi's biggest fear ending up like Gaddafi did <laughs> what else besides that could be worse you know so what's what's uh, Kim Jong Un's biggest fear? Being Gaddafi'd. That's his biggest fear. You know, like their biggest fear is the people rising up, and that is why they put out these these propaganda campaigns. That's why we didn't invade Iraq September twelfth, two thousand and eleven. We in uh, uh, two thousand and one. We invaded Iraq two thousand and three because we needed a whole fucking year plus of propaganda. They need to make sure that the people are not about to rise up. But that's also our opening. 
that, okay, so they need the people to be propagandized. They, they're, they're so concerned that what we want is to, we want to have like a soft threat that the people will not take this and then hope that they won't step over that line. Yeah. Now, this kind of perfectly segues into the next section, which is how states relate to one another. And that's that. We have one more and that's it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, the, I mean, the, the two main takeaways I got from that is how he makes parallels, you know, with how the states interact with each other and how they try to limit state power. And we did it on the on the domestic level with, you know, the Constitution. But like on an external level with other states, they do it with like, you know, the uh, like international law or treaties or mm-hmm. stuff like that. And even then he kind of makes further points on how they are also just as flimsy. And that, like, you know, a treaty doesn't really extend from one, uh, you know, you know, just like look at Trump and B- uh, Biden. It's like, you know, do you think anything that Biden or that Trump did really has that much effect on anything Biden does? Nothing's binding. I mean, it's all just fucking words on paper. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, look at the uh, you have the Iran, like uh, a couple just really good uh, uh, recent examples. You have the Iran deal that Obama entered and Trump just tore it up. Right. And then you have the uh, the deal that Trump made with the Taliban that, that Biden just tore up and pushed back. We'll see what happens with that next month. But, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting that you could just make a deal with someone. And then, the net, like, this would never hold with any private company that you could have a deal, have a contract, literally have a contract. Like, we all signed a deal. And then it was like, well, there's a new guy in, so fuck you and fuck your deal. We're done. We don't care. You know, and um, that is far more unstable than a deal that's binding, which would be binding under any private, you know, agreement where if you like if you buy a company, you buy all of their agreements. Um, And but but it is interesting the way countries interact with each other. I've always thought this and I don't know if Rothbard exactly makes this point in the piece, but I think he nudges at this um, that if you are a minarchist i think you have if you're going to be consistent which is pretty tough to be if you're a minarchist i think you have to believe in world government i don't think there's any way you can get around believing because once you accept that there are competing governments you've already kind of given up the game you know like if because because once you go oh, well there are competing governments all around the world well why shouldn't there be competing governments within the United States of America like what magic says that between Canada and Mexico plus Alaska and Hawaii and Puerto Rico has to be one country you know that's that's very arbitrary so once once you say that it's like well why can't it be you know fifty governments why can't it be 600 governments or or 6,000 governments. I mean, like, why does it have to be one? What's the benefit of that? And if it's a benefit for it to all be one, then wouldn't it be more of a benefit if, you know, America, Canada, and Mexico were all one? And if that's more of a benefit, then why wouldn't it be more of a benefit if the entire world was one? But once you get to that point, if you care about, you know, not, not just like human liberty, but just like a decent world, if you go to the point of world government, you'd have to say, well, I mean, the big problem there is that if you have world government, what if that one government goes bad? Then the whole world is under this terrible government. So, you know, once you – because because you'll hear a lot that like um, objectivists or minarchists will say, well, 
the the problem with anarchy is that what well so we'll talk about like having defense protection agencies or whatever and they'll go well what if they all start warring with each other and i i think that's a legitimate threat i mean i don't i don't think that doesn't exist like yeah fucking people fight you know i grew up in brooklyn and i've been around a lot of people people dudes fight sometimes and sometimes dudes are fucking assholes they get drunk they get power hungry they get all this and they can fight but if you're going to have different governments throughout the world you know we had two world wars i mean where where tens of millions of people were slaughtered and and then i mean after the second world war you know st- like after the peace Stalin and Mao were set up, you know, to go just slaughter their own people. So, I mean, if you count the deaths of all of them, I mean, it's like, holy shit, you're, you're up to like over 100 million people dead. So yay, we won. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, so what is that? So so either you're going to go to a place where you're for world government, or you're for anarchy. It, you know, like, I, I just think the only way to be consistent ethically and morally is to go in one of those two directions. And I think that when you realize how states interact with each other, you you realize that the, that's no better than how, you know, private companies would interact with each other or private companies would interact with states, which is a more realistic, you know, scenario that there would just be some private governments or private societies that would interact with other states. I mean, how, how can you say it's a guarantee or even uh, an expected outcome? that they would interact worse with each other, interact worse than George W. Bush and Saddam Hussein did. I mean, like, if there were any type of um, incentives that weren't based off, I can just fucking rob from other people, and they have to fuck, you know, and they, like, like George W. Bush, when he was negotiating with Saddam Hussein, knew that he had the tax base of the richest country that's ever existed, that he could just extort this money from them, and he never had to worry about that. But if anyone else was in that situation where they, any of their own skin was in the game, wouldn't they be like, all right, listen, th- this guy's like, I don't know, it's like, you, it's like you negotiating with a fucking three-year-old over how to get his fucking wallet. Well, probably you don't have to kill him, right? Probably you could do it in a way where you just fucking take it, and or or at least pressure them into giving it to you like so i i think that that chapter to me is very important in understanding that it's like yeah whatever the weaknesses you might think in private organizations working together states working together or or you know are are it's far more problematic yeah, no, you were totally just like dancing around the other point I had there, which is that in it kind of insinuates in this piece too that it's like it's kind of almost a sort of an example how anarchy in a way would work, but obviously a shittier version because yeah. the states are working amongst each other. They are entities well, right. that technically there don't is, have a higher right. thing. Yeah. There so, is anarchy amongst the world, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that's that that's the the in in terms of there's not one central you know government and even when there is lots of people ignore it and so what does that mean i mean essentially america the american empire is is working in a state of anarchy i mean we have these international laws that say you can't attack a sovereign country but between bush obama and trump what how, how many sovereign countries i mean obama was just drone bombing pakistan and they were like hey we're a sovereign country you can't do that and they were like, okay, well, 
we got a few more drone bombs and then we'll we'll get out of here and, then, and and eventually they stopped but what does it really mean all that all that matters is who's enforcing it you know and and that's really the, you know the reality of the situation like there there's different levels to this shit so who actually like might doesn't make right morally speaking but might makes what's going to happen it's you know, in reality, yeah. In we reality, talk about, yeah. We talk about it a lot in my my Sterner episode because that's kind of what Sterner is describing. It's a different perspective on the matter, but that's what yeah. reality is. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so, but I think a lot of what anatomy of the state is about is is that it's like, well, let's at least talk about reality, mm-hmm. and then we can go from there. You know, yeah. which I think is a great starting point. Like, okay, yeah. let's talk about reality. So it's not that might makes right, but might makes reality. So that's the reality that we're living under. Now, what do you believe in? What do you think is the best way to go from here? And and so I think sometimes these things are like a false dichotomy where like some people will say like, oh, might makes right. And then they're like, no, well, morality makes right. And it's like, okay, let's all come back to square one here. Might is what dominates throughout the world. Do you agree with that or not? If not, then how can we change that? That's the next uh, yeah. step, you know, next, but, but yeah, I think Sterner says something like that. Uh, what he says that, uh, right, right withers away in the face of might. <laughs> so, I mean, there's something good, to that. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, let's move on to the last one. Finally finish it off. History is a race between state power and social power, which this one, like it's kind of him just finishing off. It's almost, I saw it as almost like a note to the Liberty movement in a way, the way he ended it too, but it starts off as like, him framing the uh, the history of the world in this in this you know uh, these, this this uh, constant competition between state and social power, uh, and uh, the social power being you know what we talked about earlier with the Oppenheimer uh, paradigm with a uh, fucking you know productive and the parasitic, and uh, yeah, it just kind of goes. He kind of touches on how technology will give so- social power a big boom, and then it'll kind of like catch up. And he kind of framed the last century as the state catching up. And which kind of makes sense. And, um, you know, he leaves it off on a note of like, he kind of like, we talked in this earlier and that like, he basically straight up said in the last yeah. paragraph that he doesn't know what the fuck the praxis is, which I think is kind of our, you can see it as a white pill, black pill, whatever you want. But if anything, I kind of see it as a white pill. Cause it's like, a he's passing the torch, you know, like it's like someone as great as Rothbard didn't know it all. And now it's on to us and it's our, yeah. our role to figure this thing out and move the ball forward. Right. So, so- so right absolutely and and come on i mean come on like so much of rothbard's writing don't you just have to admit that it's just so fucking prophetic like <laughs> I, I, you know and he's not even like writing it as if like i know what's going to happen in the future but you read it and you're like god damn there's you know i remember reading some of rothbard's later writing and i'll get back to this you know but his stuff where he was talking about like the um the uh the paleo strategy in the 90s and I know that's like the thing that is so controversial that people are like, whoa, he was talking about right wing populism in the 90s. And then you you watch like the Trump presidency and OK, I don't like Trump. And in fact, I really don't like Trump. Like, I really think Trump should be like arrested and fucking tried and convicted of war crimes. Like, I think he's a really bad guy. Uh, but. You listen to Rothbard talk about how there's this opening for right-wing populism that could really win over the country, and then you watch Trump, and it, it, it's hard to not 
admit that, whoa, he was onto something, man. Like in the 90, in 1992, Rothbard saw something that didn't come true till 2016. I mean, it's, that's pretty incredible. And with this, it's like, yeah, the idea of like the kind of like social versus the political. Uh, look at where we are right now and tell me that you don't see something about that that's kind of on point. We're like, yeah, there's like all of these people, the people who are trying to speak up against the political, broadly speaking, in terms of the cathedral, and like that that's the battle. You know, there's something so profound about that. And yeah, he doesn't, he, he acknowledges that he doesn't know exactly what the, the, the strategy is going to be, but it's hard to not look at that and, and acknowledge that like, yeah, there's really something to that, that you would have these, these competing interests and that they would, they would grow more and more apart. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think that there's something so important to that, that there's something so important to recognizing that, yeah, there's there there are these people who are going to have their incentives lined up because they are part of this political apparatus and then there's going to be these other people who have their incentives lined up because they're being screwed by the political apparatus and they are going to compete with each other and then there's you know this, this is almost separate from the whole like moral issue of it and I think we're on the right moral side but that it is like we are incentivized to be enemies with each other yeah. No, I, I do. Just to, just to put it in modern terms, you know, the way he did a so, state social paradigm, you know, you look at, you know, how science has had a big boom and, you know, like just to, to, to bring it to like COVID. And now we have them like, you know, creeping into like, you know, mandated uh, vaccines, this, that. And it's like this like scientism that isn't really scientific. And it's kind of a, if you read that last section of it, it's exactly what he's describing and how there's this boom and it comes in and creep this, the, the state comes in and creeps in and kind of inserts itself into there. And we're seeing that now. And, and like I said, I think that at the end of the paragraph yeah. kind of leaves as a, you know, here's your chance to leave your mark and hopefully and, we and, can. And so. look, and, and the other thing I'll say is that Rothbard's making the case that there was kind of the rise of the social and then the rise of the state. And you look, if you look at the 19th and 20th century, it, it's really hard to not see that. You know, it, it, it's funny because the, the popular narrative, what you'll be taught in public school, or you'll be taught if you listen to anyone in the cathedral, right? Like if you, if you asked anyone in the corporate press or the political class or it, you know, what you'd learn in academia or anything like that. Well, what would they tell you? Like, what's the, what's the standard line about the 19th century versus the 20th century? Well, the 19th century is what? It's factories that are, you know, sub, you know, standard conditions and Production. child labor laws and awfulness and slavery and racism and horribleness and and you know misogyny and patriarchy you know the, they have their it was just awful the 20th century is where everything good happened right like that that's where everything you have the civil rights movement and you have 
I, I don't know, just like everything good you could think of, public schools and the, 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 you know, women's liberation and like all of this. That's the story. That's the official story. But it's literally the opposite. <laughs> if you actually look at what happened, like in the 19th century, okay, from the year 1800 to 1900, it goes from, you know, economic growth from what we know of it today does not exist. Like, if you look from 1800 to, to 1900, like, forget even 1800 to 1900. Can people see my fingers on this? Okay. So <laughs> if you were, if you look from year zero to year 1900, it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's just the economic growth does not exist and then happens. And it's all from 1800 to 1900. Everything before that that's ever existed was nothing until that. You know, like this is the, where the industrial revolution happens, where actually the, it's the, as Milton Friedman used to say, the greatest rise in the standard of living, like for the average human being that has ever happened in the world. Maybe you can compare like what's going on in China and India in the last 40 years to that, but literally just un, unprecedented, you know, from in, in the beginning, in 1800, everyone is making their clothes at home and wearing the same dirty, grimy fucking outfit for days on end and then washing it by hand. By the year 1900, at least wealthy people, they're ordering their shit from Macy's. You know, like they're, not everyone, but it gets to that point where like the production capacity has rised so much. And and they, that's like, it's this unbelievable from from 1800 to 1900 you went from a time where there was literally zero modern economy from to 1900 where you have like department stores slavery has been abolished and there's been an industrial revolution the greatest advancement in human history. Now, it's easy for us by 2021 standards to look back at it and say, well, this was wrong and this was wrong. I'm like, okay. But forget comparing 1900 to today. Compare 1900 to everything that came before it. You know? So really amazing, like incredible advancements that had happened. And all of that happened because the social force dominated the political force because governments had shrunk more than ever and and the power of the liberty of people had grown more than ever like this is the thing that milton friedman used to always say right but like try to imagine that in that real period where the industrial revolution is happening particularly in america and that all this economic growth is happening that you have no uh income tax no federal reserve no central bank the, the federal spending is basically non-existent, no regulatory state, no welfare state, all of this. And that's where all of this is happening. That's where you go from 1800, you know, extreme poverty, slavery, all of this to 1900, slavery is abolished, industrial revolution, you know. And then after that, by, by 1913, we have a Federal Reserve. 1914, we have an income tax. Then by 1918, we're in the First World War. We get the, the Great Depression, the Second World War, then all of this. So yeah, you had the rise of, the, the, you had the greatest moment in human history and then the greatest catastrophe in human history. And that's not to say that great things didn't happen 
in the in the 20th century but a lot of that was built off the great shit that happened in the 19th century and and a lot and the worst things of it were built off the statism that rose up where you also had two world wars and fucking all these fucking crazy you know socialist dictators and fucking genocides and shit so there's there's a real interesting important thing to recognize about that that i think rothbard gets that a lot of other thinkers do not yeah um well i feel like i've kept you a good while we went longer than you said uh is there anything else you'd like to add uh before we, we go ahead and kill this or do you feel like we hit it all I'd say that, that to me, that's the most important piece. Go read Anatomy of the State and then War, Peace, and the State. That's the yeah. next one that you got to yeah. go read. Uh, with that, you want to go ahead and drop your plugs? Oh, yeah. Part of the problem at Comic Dave Smith. All that good shit. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jose. Oh, I, fucking, for, I love, I love what you're doing, dude. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you fucking inviting yeah. me. Let's, let's do another fucking podcast and talk about some other shit some other time. But yeah. Oh, I'd fucking love it. I'll uh, fucking hold you to it. <laughs> There you go. Hold me to it. <laughs> You'd be like, dude, I just fucking was saying that. Well, leave me yeah, bro, that was really just on the fly. I threw I was, that out there. That's just what polite people say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it. Let's fucking, let's do another one. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, uh, dude, it's been great. It really was like uh, you made a little girl's dream come true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, I'm uh, Jose Galison. No way, Jose. You can find me on YouTube. Find me anywhere audio podcasts are at. If you'd like to give me money, patreon.com slash no way, Jose 2020. Like, share, subscribe, all that gay shit. And with that, I'm out. And broadcasts.